Please be seated. Before we hear the reading and the preaching of the word of God, let us approach the Lord in prayer. Let us pray. Father God, we just come before you this morning to give you praise for your glorious word. Lord, we just pray that whatever is said, whatever is preached, and whatever is read, let it be to your glory and nothing else. In your name, Christ Jesus, amen. If you have your uh, copies of the scripture, please turn to Revelation chapter 22. Revelation 22. This is easy to find. It's literally the last chapter, the last book of the Bible. And I, I... I was going through this uh, process over the week, thinking if I'm covering two days or two sermons per day, I'll start in the morning at the last book of the Bible and the evening with the first book of the Bible and just confuse everybody. That's my goal. (laughs) Revelation chapter 22, first five verses. Now hear the infallible, preserve, and errant word of God. Revelation chapter 22. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of his streets, on either side of the river, was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, and there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him and they shall see his face and his name shall be on their foreheads and there shall be no night there they need no lamp nor light of the sun for the lord god gives them light and they shall reign forever and ever this concludes the reading of god's holy infallible word thanks be unto the lord as good reformed presbyterians we teach our children the shorter catechism question one, which is, what is you know, man's chief end? The answer is to glorify and to enjoy God forever. As Reformed believers, we have this beautiful doctrine about our chief end. And this morning, I want to look at where our faith is taking us. Because our temporal life can distract us from the goods of the highest end, our chief end. We must know where Christ is is taking his bride so that we do not lose that heavenly sight, that, that end goal. For Christians, we live for Christ and nothing else. The world wants all the things of this time and place and now, all the gadgets and gizmos and the life that they are promoting. But for us, we say, take the world back and give us Jesus. This is why Paul could say this, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. What do we gain when we depart from this world? Where does our faith take us? For us to know that answer, we, we, we look to the last chapter of the book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 22. I want to give a quick commentary over this book that is, when hunt is the victor in the world under the dominion of sin, death, and the devil, and as God who is bringing about his glorious purposes in this world by ordinary means, by creation and providence, by gathering every Sunday and singing ordinary songs and listening to a boring guy from California to read the Bible to you. And that's how he's bringing about his glorious purposes by ordinary means. To lead what or who? His blood-bought bride to that eternal state of blessings. 
And that is what I want to show you this morning. The direction for the blood-bought saints is in the presence of the city of God, beholding God himself. I want to break our passage into three parts this morning. First part is the uh, uh, setting or the scenery of God or God's city. And what is described here in the first several verses actually echoes throughout pages of Scripture when we read from the prophets or from the law or the New Testament about the eternal bliss that we have with God. We see glimpses of it, but here we see the reality. The second part is what we will be doing in that beautiful city as the blood-bought saints of the Lamb. In his presence, we see that in verses three and four, when John says that we will uh, serve God, but also we will see His face. And seeing God's face, it's doctrinally called the beatific vision. The beatific vision. I'm gonna move that because I'm afraid that it will fall. And finally, the third part I want to focus in is the purpose for Christians at the for their highest end living and enjoying God forever and ever. The reason why I want to focus on this passage this morning is so that we can find our joy, that we can find our hope in this world of turmoil and suffering. We just prayed for the persecuted church and how they are suffering now, but yet they have joy knowing that their end will deliver them into the presence of God. The implication with knowing our highest end, the chief end, will influence our actions, our thoughts, and our words in everyday life. As Reformed Christians, we are often, you know, described as those Reformers with that cold predestination-type doctrine that, you know, they're so high and mighty in their loftiness and their theology, but they, are, they just have cold hearts. I want to actually push that back and say this. If we are seen as those cold-hearted Reformed type guys who can't have joy of the end where God has taken us, then we're doing it wrong. We are doing it wrong. Because the doctrine of our highest end, our chief end, that leads us to the very presence of God, ought to give us that warmth, that fervent love for God, so that when we walk through this world, people will notice something different about us. Not because there's something different about us, but there is something different about the God who is in us. So let us, let us uh, uh, dive right in by looking at the first point, the setting and the scenery of the city of God. Look at verse 1 with me again, beloved. This is what John writes. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Remember, in the original text, there are no chapter divisions or, or um, uh, verse, verses. You know, this is a continuation of the whole entire revelation to which John is seeing here. And this is a continuation, namely, from Revelation chapter 21. If you look at verse 9 in Revelation 21 real quickly, John describes the angel coming back down who had won the bowls filled with the plagues. He takes John and shows him the new heavens and the new earth. What John sees in the city, what he sees is a city coming out of heaven and descending to earth. What is it? It's that heavenly Jerusalem. That heavenly Jerusalem, or what St. Augustine once called it, the city of God. In our passage, we see the heart of the city as a flowing river. 
John is very descriptive here in verse 1 that, that this river is in the middle of the city of God, in the middle of God's presence. Look what he says in verse 1. He says, it's a pure river of water of life. If you guys are great scholars, which I know you are, because Pastor Andy is a great scholar himself, and I know he's training you guys every day, right? This is reflecting off of that beautiful psalm, Psalm 46, what David writes about the city of God. He says this in Psalm 46. There is a river whose streams shall make glad the city of God. And now John is seeing that vision. He's on those very banks of those river of that river that's flowing into the city of God or flowing out of it, better yet, that makes the city of God glad. Notice the other adjectives that John uses here to describes this to describe this river. First, he calls it a pure river. Then he calls it a water of life. And third, he calls it it's clear as crystal. This is that type of water that you want to drink on a hot summer's day when you've been working out in the yard, just covered in dirt, going through you know, endless chores. This is the water to which re- uh, refreshes your soul. And I think that's what John is getting at here. And believe me, I know all of you guys understand what a hot summer day is like here in North Carolina. Or those who are from Florida, you understand that as well. It's always humid and hot. And a cool cup of water satisfies that that temperature in which we experience. This water of life does more than that. It does way more than that. It revives the soul. This, there, there, uh, there's more to this, though. I want to I look at this passage a little bit more before we move on. It's vital. Do you see where this river is flowing from in verse 1? It's proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. The source of this river is God the Father and God the Son on the one throne. I love this description to which John is given us, this description of the throne, the heavenly courtyard of God, because he sees God the Son. He notices there's God the Father, two distinct persons, but the same God on the throne. But why a river? I was studying this week, and I, I, I was just overwhelmed with, like, just why this river? Why is there a river pouring forth from the throne of God? I checked out a great commentary by James Durham. If you guys get a chance to read it, I highly recommend it. His commentary says this. This river, he, he mentions, is a constellation of, of our strives in the world. He says, a streaming of constellation comes from the Father and from the Son. And he says, the constellation, the effects of the rivers, like the Spirit, in the life, in our life today, that's compared to the waters and rivers of life. Then he quotes John chapter 7, verse 38, where Jesus says, If any man thirsts, let him come to me, and rivers of, uh, of water of life will be flowing out of his heart. He quotes that, then he says this, I love this. James Durham says, Which maketh some apply this river to the Holy Spirit, which proceeds from the Father and the Son the general is a truth that believers in heaven shall be well refreshed and satisfied and that with such consolations that proceed from the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Did you catch that there? And the presence, the very heart of the city of God is the triune God that we will be entering into. Oh, this river is not just a river to give us refreshing, you know, drink from a hot day in the sun no it's a river to revive our soul 
to, and this river is for those to whom Christ died for. Beloved, we have so much more about this, the presence of, of the triune God, God in verse 1 more than anything, but we, we need to move on. I could continue on that verse all day. I love it. But verse 2, check it out. It says this. In the middle of a street, middle of the street of the city of God, on either side of the river was the tree of life. This is reference back to Genesis 2. You remember in, uh, in, in the garden there were two trees explicitly named, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which Adam was commanded not to eat from, and the second one, the tree of life. The tree of life, as many good reformers like Calvin and others argued, was the sacrament for Adam if he did not fell in the garden. Now we see it here in the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of God, in the middle of the street on both sides of the river is this very tree, the tree of life. Notice how John describes this tree. He uses the singular. There is but one tree of life, but it's on both sides of the river and yet in the middle of the street. It's kind of hard for us to understand, and this is a prophetic book, I think what John is getting at from a lot of different commentaries from Matthew Henry all the way down, James Durham, they're saying that this tree is accessible for all to partake. You don't have to go across the street or across the river or down and back or down yonder here in the south. You can access this tree. But there's so much more to this tree. Look at the end of verse 2. John says this, The leaves of that tree were for what? The healing of the nations. Oh, beloved, imagine that day. Imagine that day, real quick, where the nations who are in Christ come into the presence of the living God. Imagine for a second the believers in Ukraine and Russia right now who are afflicting so much terror to each other, coming with their their pain and afflictions from their daily lives now, and they cross over that river, they see their once enemies, and God gives them medicine, the leaves of the tree of life, or better yet, about the different tribes in Africa that are warring against each other over stuff that's too complicated for me to understand or so foreign for us to grasp. And they will cross over that river and see the very people that they once persecuted. And God will heal their pain with the very leaves of this tree of life. What a beautiful image that we have here. And before I move on, there's one more description uh, of the setting or the scenery of the city of God. It's the beginning of verse 3. Look at this, beloved. It says this, the first part. And there shall be no more curse. Just stop. Just stop right there. Just ponder that for a second. There's no more curse. There is no more curse in the city of God. Beloved, this is more than just that eternal bliss and happiness in God's presence. This is freedom. It's more than just freedom from pain and suffering and death. No. There will be a day in this heavenly Jerusalem, the city of God, that we will no longer sin against our God. The effects of sin is the curse 
of death. And that is removed. And we will be able to walk into God's presence without uh, dishonoring him, without transgressing, without rebelling against our God, the creator of the universe who loved us and died for us. Yes, there will be no more sin, no more death, no more devil, and that's very important. But there will be one day when we walk into this presence of our king without causing sin against him. That's very important for us to see here. And there's so much more to glean from the first three verses, at least two and a half verses of Revelation chapter 22. But before I move on to the second point, I think we should be meditating about the setting or the scenery of God's city in heaven to which we will be partakers of. Why? Because if we are setting our affections like Colossians 3, setting our minds on things above where Christ is reigning now, then this life would be so much easier. We could go through suffering so much easier, focused on that end goal in Christ Jesus. Beloved, Believe me, if you were able to spend one minute, one minute in the city, that heavenly courtyards with God, and hearing the, the angels and the saints singing unto our Lord, if you were there physically for one minute, and you're transported back to this life, you would want to suffer your entire life to enter back into that city. You would only regret once you're back into that city that you only had one life to suffer for the Lord, to dwell with him. For all eternity. That is the city of God. That is the setting, the scenery to which we will be partakers of. But point two, I want to focus on a lot. Really, it's uh, the saints' action in the city of God. What will we be doing in heaven? Look at verse three. It says this. After John says there's no more curse, he says this. But the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. What a beautiful picture here. Our first action in the city of God is to do what that John is saying here in verse 3, is to serve God. The word, the Greek word here is uh, letreo, and it also could mean to worship or minister. Matter of fact, this is the same word that the angels are described with when they come to minister, to minister to the Lord after the temptations. So John is using the same word that the angels are described with, with ministering to the Lord after the temptations. The saints are doing that very thing in Revelation chapter 22. Matter of fact, Paul uses this word, letreo, very often in his epistles. He says in Philippians 3.3, 3, speaking about the Jews, we are the circumcision who worship, or letreo, God in the Spirit. Or 2 Timothy 1.3 says, I thank God whom I serve, or letrero, with a pure conscience. Our service in this city is therefore to worship or to minister unto the Lord God. It's not that we are working as slaves to God, as so many people think that Christians do. We are just mindless servants of the Lord. No, we are worshiping beings. And in this heavenly city to which we are called as Christians, we enter those courts as fulfilling that nature as worshiping beings by worshiping the highest being, the uncreated God, the God who loved us and died for us. This is the message throughout the Bible. Matter of fact, Peter in Peter chapter or first Peter one, he says this, speaking to the Christians. 
You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. You see that there. Peter knew that our ultimate end as Christians is to be in that presence of the Lord, the Lord who called us out of this darkened world, and he has gathered us in that heavenly Jerusalem, that marvelous light. If you look at verse 5 real quick, it says there's no more night. There's no more need for lamps or the sun because the Lord is our light. God has called us out of, the, out of that darkness into that marvelous light to do what? To give and proclaim the praises, to worship him. But John adds one more description to which we will be doing in the city of God. Look at verse 4 with me. It says, the first part, they, the servants, us, the saints, the blood-bought bride will see what? His face. They will see the face of God. Let's take a second to ponder about that. What is John saying here? What is John saying? That we will see God's face. And by the way, this is what is called the beatific vision, doctrinally speaking. If you're like me, you're, you're wondering, like, do we physically see God with our physical eyes? Or is it something else? Do we take John's words here in the most non-literal book, very literal? Or do we understand this metaphorically or anagorically like so many people have centuries past? What, what is the issue, Bridger? We will see God. What is the controversy? Is there one? Well, there a little bit there is. Throughout the Bible, God is very clear that we cannot see his face. Speaking to Moses in Exodus, after that great exchange that Moses had, Moses said to God, let me see your glory. We all remember this. And we know the story. God hit him in the cleft of the rock. And that's why that beautiful hymn, cleft of, you know, Rock of Ages, cleft for me. Um, I'm trying to learn that to sing with my daughter, and I'm not good at that. You can see that now. But what does God say to Moses? You cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. Why? Because God is so transcendent that we cannot grasp his essence. God is so beautiful, so majestic, so glorious that we cannot approach him as he truly is. Moses actually taught that to Israel. Remember Deuteronomy 4 when he is telling, recanting the history, or recalling the history to Israel. He said this to that new generation, the Lord spoke to you in the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of the words, but you didn't see any form. Emphasizing that you cannot see God. We get passages in the New Testament, likewise, that stress on the transcendence of God, that we cannot see God. 1 Timothy 6.16 says this. This is Paul speaking, speaking about God. Who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen nor can see. Or even John, the author of Revelation, beginning in the Gospel, Gospel of John, chapter 1, he says this, verse 18, no man has seen God at any time. Or in 1 John, his epistle, 4.12, kind of repeats the same thing. No one has seen God at any time. Bottom line, God in his essence is so grand, so majestic, so beautiful, 
that we cannot comprehend it with our eyes. This is why our confession of faith, chapter 7, speaking about God and covenants, they say this, the distance between God and the creature is so great that uh, although reasonable creatures like us do owe obedience unto their creator, yet they could never have any fruition of him as their blessedness and reward, but by some voluntary condescension on God's part. However, that's not the conundrum. That's only half the problem. The other half is that we have plenty of passages to which speak about seeing God. For example, Job, in Job 42, he says this, speaking to God when God confronts him, I have heard of thee and by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes have have seen you. And the Beatitudes Jesus taught, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. I mentioned earlier 1 John 4 where John says that no one at any time has seen God. Well, the chapter before that, he says this, We know that when he is revealed, we shall see him as he is. Finally, Paul, speaking about God, he says this, For we see in a mirror dimly, but then we will see face to face. That's the New Testament passages along with Old Testament passages, which shows us that we will see and not see God. Even our Westminster uh, uh, framers in the larger catechism, question 90, they answered it this way. Question 90 reads, what shall be done to the righteous on the day of judgment? Well, their answer to the second half, they said this, the saints will be filled with inconceivable joy, made perfectly and holy and happy, both in body and soul, in the company of the innumerable saints and angels. And get this, but especially in that in immediate vision and fruition of God the Father, of the Lord Jesus, and the Holy Spirit for all eternity. That is that perfect communion, full of presence and perfect Beloved, that's just scratching the surface. We haven't discussed the lengthy debate in the church from the East, Eastern Church or the Western Church or the Church of Rome versus the Reformed Churches, confessional or non-confessional. The beatific vision is one of those topics to which I think on this side of heaven we will never fully grasp or understand because it's God that we're talking about. It's like trying to understand the Trinity. If you think you understood the Trinity, then you don't know the Trinity. From what I gathered this week from our study to understand this passage, we do not see God physically with our eyes. If we did, then scripture is broken about not seeing God. And that would make God a liar. But God is not a liar, nor does he change his mind. James Durham quotes this in his commentary, The saints see not his essence with their bodily eyes, for he is a spirit. Another a great man, Wilhelmus Ebrackel, he says this in his uh, commentary on the beatific, or commentary part of the beatific vision, Christian reasonable service. He says this, God cannot be seen with our physical eyes, for he is the invisible one. However, both Durham and Ebrackel agree that we will see Christ, who is, full, who is the fullness of the Godhead. All the Godhead dwells in Christ Jesus. Christ, who is the incarnate God, will show us his glory. We read in the New Testament reading, John chapter 14, and which is in my notes, you know, providence, irony, if you want to call it that, has it that we read the answer to the question. Whoever has seen Christ has seen the Father. 
we have, if we will see Christ in that heavenly courtroom, we see the whole Godhead dwelling in Christ. It is through seeing that glorified Logos, the Word of God, the Christ Jesus himself, we will grow in the knowledge of God. And that is how we will see God, the triune God, by beholding his Son. Oh, I love how Thomas Watson puts it. He says this in the body of divinity. We shall corporately behold the glorified body of Jesus Christ. And if it be pleasant thing to behold the Son, oh, how blessed will it be to behold the Son of righteousness. Beloved, what a beautiful sight that the saints, the blood-bought bride of Christ, will have on that glorified day when they see that last Adam, Christ the King, sitting victorious over all the creation, that very creation to which he made. Brothers and sisters, this is our shining hope that we have in this world. We will see Christ. Think about that. We will see Christ and truly who he is without any hindrance of sin. We will not see him through mirrors like Paul is saying, but we will see him face to face. It doesn't matter how gloomy our days are today, that should give us warmth. That hope should bring us warmth to our heart, knowing that we will see Christ. It doesn't matter how cold and dark your days are now. You may be going through something that I'm, I'm unaware of. Literally, I'm unaware of because I'm not your pastor. You might be struggling with something. Oh, beloved, there will be a day when you will see Christ face to face. And that is the hope to which purifies us according to 1 John 3, 3. Better yet, if you are holding on to this hope of seeing Christ in this world and that one day you will see him in those heavenly uh, courts, that you will get a glimpse of that majesty, you will be more motivated more than ever to kill sin in your life because sin is trying to prevent you from partaking of that heavenly blessing of seeing Christ. Let that motivate you when you're struggling against sin in this world or that you cannot overcome some sort of temptation. Run to Christ with that hope, knowing that you will see him as he truly is. And that hope will purify you as he is pure. The the last part, the purpose. The final last point is what is the purpose to all of this? Last sentence, last sentence of the last verse. Verse 5, I haven't uh, touched, up, touched up on every single word here, and then there's not enough time to do it justice. But let's just look, focus on the last sentence. It says this, And they shall reign forever and ever. The saints shall reign forever and ever. Beloved, the price of uh, Christ's blood demands that we will be co-heirs with them. Christ's obedience imputed to us the both active and passive righteousness of Christ imputed on us testifies that we too shall be partakers in that royal courtroom dressed in that beautiful majesty of his holiness. It is Christ who promises that we will be like him, 1 John 3, 2, and that by that we will be, we'll have that perfect union to which the ending of the book of Revelation so explicitly shows to us that the tabernacle of God is with men or humanity. And what will we be doing in this tabernacle in the city of God in that courtyard? We will be giving God praise. 
remember in Ephesians chapter 1 about uh, Paul's great doctrine about you know, the elect before the foundation world. He says this about the purpose of that. The purpose is to the praise of his glorious grace. All of world history, everything that we see around us is leading up to that moment for the saints to walk into those heavenly courtyards to praise God for his glorious grace. It is the glorious grace of God that we will be partakers of that divine nature by glorifying God and enjoying him. It is that grace to which transform us even now. How do we end up partaking of this divine nature? We end up partaking in this divine nature, namely by seeing that glorified Christ, by giving him glory for his virtuous acts in this world, and we see the entire Godhead in Christ Jesus. That is the reward, the purpose, our joy as saints of God. Then he says that we will reign with him. Beloved, We will be in those courtyards with God. We will be in those courts with the king of kings, sitting enthroned and praising him for his works. And we'll be reigning with him as that bride bought with his blood. And the words from the psalmist will be fulfilled, saying, Psalm 45, this is what he says about the queen of heaven, if you want to call it that. The king will greatly desire your beauty because he is your Lord. Worship him. The daughter of Tyre will come with a gift. The rich will, uh, among the people will seek your favor, and the royal daughter, to all glo- uh, the royal daughter is all glorious within the palace. Her clothing is woven with gold, and she shall be brought to the king in robes of many colors. The virgins, her companions who follow her, shall be brought to you with gladness and rejoicing. They shall be brought, and they shall enter the king's palace. Beloved, that's about the saints. That's about the bride of Christ entering those courtyards. May we endure on our earthly journey to that heavenly courtyard, that heavenly city, the city of God. Let us therefore prepare our hearts, our minds, and our bodies to meet our King face to face. That's what John taught us. That's what John taught us in Revelation 22. That is what he taught us in the Gospel of John and 1 John he also taught us, saying that we are the children of God. It's not been revealed to what we will be like, but when he appears, we will be like him, and we will see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope, as he continues to say, purifies himself because he is pure. Our direction as that blood-bought saints is to go into God's presence and to that city to behold him. And that is where our faith has taken us, into the presence of our Christ, our King, the lover of our soul. Let us pray. Father God, thank you so much for your words. Lord, as we depart from here, let us be overwhelmed with joy to feed on that hope every second of our daily tasks and purposes. Let us just focus on you and overcome the sins of this world and temptations all around it so that we may suffer for your glory and to behold you as you truly are. Lord, we love you.